Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. The Bollingen Prize for Poetry, established in 1948 by Paul Mellon, is a major honor awarded every two years for the best volume of poetry published in those years or for a poet's lifetime achievement in his or her art. For this event, Yale, A Place for Poetry, the Bollingen Prize for Poetry at Yale, 1949 to 2002, nearly all of the living recipients of the prize are brought together for a group reading. Rarely do so many of the finest American poets converge in a single event. My name is Pat Willis, and I'm the curator of the Yale Collection of American Literature at the Beinecke Library, but more importantly tonight, secretary to the Bollingen Prize. It's a great privilege to welcome nine poets of such renown, and because of their renown, we know that they are familiar to you all. There are brief biographies in the program, should anyone need to keep track as they read in alphabetical order. Therefore, instead of the usual introductions, I would like to introduce the poets together. To accomplish this task, I've enlisted the words of winners of this prize over time to characterize the work of tonight's readers. You must remember that the following comments range from those made about very young poets as well as to those comments crafted more in midstream. Kenneth Koch on John Ashbery's mastery. The illumination of life turned into language and language life. William Carlos Williams on Robert Creeley. The subtlest feeling for the measure that I encounter anywhere except in the verse of Ezra Pound. Stanley Kunitz on Louise Glick. Her poems are delicately intense, spun out of fire and air, with the tensile strength that belies their fragility. Robert Penn Warren on John Hollander, very early on. A writer of stunning technical resources drawn effortlessly into a poetry of deep feeling. Louise Glick on Stanley Kunitz. Learning from his rigor in the practice of poetry, I thought the sacrifice of contentment was well worth such serious joy. John Hollander on W.S. Merwin's The Folding Cliffs. This wondrous poem totally reinvents the ways in which the structures and units of verse frame different sorts of episodes, scenes, vignettes, and sequences in a way as readable as exciting. Gary Snyder's first book by Robert Creeley. Its manner is quiet, low-keyed, with much solidity and peace. And that is a pleasure, offered as it is, by a working intelligence and care. Robert Penn Warren on Mark Strand's Darker. The moment is always exciting when true po the true poet finds the secret self that is the wellspring of his inspiration and Richard Eberhardt on the poetry of Richard Wilbur. One of the best poets of his generation, he has imagined excellence and has created it. Before we begin the reading proper, we'd like to take a moment to read from the work of poets who we had planned to be with us, but who could not. Anthony Hecht, uh, because of illness, could not be here this evening. 
And I would like to read a poem of his from his book, The Hard Hours. It's called A Hill. In Italy, where this sort of thing can occur, I had a vision once. Though you understand it was nothing at all like Dante's or the visions of saints, and perhaps not a vision at all. I was with some friends picking my way through a warm, sunlit piazza in the early morning. A clear fretwork of shadows from huge umbrellas littered the pavement and made a sort of lucent shallows in which was moored a small navy of carts. Books, coins, old maps, cheap landscapes, and ugly religious prints were all on sale. The colors and noise, like the flying hands, were gestures of exultation, so that even the bargaining rose to the ear like a valuable godliness. And then, when it happened, the noises suddenly stopped, and it got darker. Pushcarts and people dissolved, and even the great Farnese Palace itself was gone for all its marble. In its place was a hill mole-colored and bare. It was very cold, close to freezing, with a promise of snow. The trees were like old ironwork gathered for scrap outside a factory wall. There was no wind, and the only sound for a while was the little click of ice as it broke in the mud under my feet. I saw a piece of ribbon snagged on a hedge, but no other sign of life. And then I heard what seemed the crack of a rifle. A hunter, I guessed. At least I was not alone. But just after that came the soft and papery crash of a great branch somewhere unseen falling to earth. And that was all, except for the cold and silence that promised to last forever, like the hill. Then prices came through and fingers, and I was restored to the sunlight and my friends. But for more than a week, I was scared by the plain bitterness of what I had seen. All this happened about ten years ago, and it hasn't troubled me since. But at last, today, I remembered that hill. It lies just to the left of the road north of Poughkeepsie, and as a boy, I stood before it for hours in wintertime. Poem by Donald Justice. This poem is not addressed to you. You may come into it briefly, but no one will find you here, no one. You will have changed before the poem will. Even while you sit there unmovable, you have begun to vanish, and it does not matter. The poem will go on without you. It has 
the spurious glamour of certain voids. It is not sad, really, only empty. Once, perhaps, it was sad, no one knows why. It prefers to remember nothing. Nostalgias were peeled from it long ago. Your type of beauty has no place here. Night is the sky over this poem. It is too black for stars. And do not look for any illumination. You neither can nor should understand what it means. Listen, it comes without guitar, neither in rags nor any purple fashion, and there is nothing in it to comfort you. Close your eyes, yawn, it will be over soon. You will forget the poem, but not before it has forgotten you. And it does not matter. It has been most beautiful in its erasures. Obleached mirrors, oceans of the drowned. Nor is one silence equal to another. And it does not matter what you think. This poem is not addressed to you. I'm Mark Strand, and I'm going to read a poem by Kenneth Koch, who passed away, that is, who died recently. This poem is called Paradiso. There is no way not to be excited when what you have been disillusioned by raises its head from its arms and seems to want to talk to you again. You forget home and family and set off on foot or in your automobile and go to where you believe this form of reality may dwell. Not finding it there, you refuse any further contact until you are back again trying to forget the only thing that moved you, it seems, and gave what you forever will have, but in the form of a disillusion. Yet often, looking toward the horizon there, inimical to you, is that something you have never found and that without those who came before you, you could never have imagined. How could you have thought there was one person who could make you happy and that happiness was not the uneven phenomenon you have known it to be. Why do you keep believing in this reality so dependent on the time allowed it that it has less to do with your exile from the age you are than from everything else life promised that you could do? Now we will begin the alphabet with John Ashbury. I'm going to read a few poems from a, a book that's being published next month uh, Chinese Whispers is the, is the title. Um, a number of them are prose poems. Uh, this is the this first one is. It's called a nice presentation. I have a friendly disposition, but am forgetful, though I tend to forget only important things. Several mornings ago, I was lying in my bed, listening to a sound of leisurely hammering coming from a nearby building. 
For some reason, it made me think of spring, which it is. Listening, I heard also a man and woman talking together. I couldn't hear very well, but it seemed they were discussing the work that was being done. This made me smile. They sounded like good and dear people, and I was slipping back into dreams when the phone rang. No one was there. Some of these are perhaps people having to do with anything in the world. I wish to go away on a dark night to leave people and the rain behind, but I'm too caught up in my own selfish thoughts and desires for this. For it to happen, I would have to be asleep and already started on my voyage of self-discovery around the world. One is certain then to meet many people and to hear many strange things being said. I like this in a way, but wish it would stop as the unexpectedness of it conflicts with my desire to revolve in a constant deliberate motion, to drink tea from a samovar, to use chopsticks in the land of the Asiatics, to be stung by the sun's bees and have it not matter. Most things don't matter, but an old woman of my acquaintance is always predicting doom and gloom, and her prophecies matter, though they may never be fulfilled. That's one reason I don't worry too much, but I like to tell her she is right but also wrong, because what she says won't happen. Yet how can I or anyone know this? For the seasons do come round in leisurely fashion, and one takes a pinch of something from each, according to one's desires and what it leaves behind. Not long ago I was in a quandary about this, but now it's too late. The evening comes on and the aspens leaven its stars. It's all about this observatory, a shout fills. This is called Disagreeable Glimpses, translation of a title of a, of a work by Satie, called Aperçu Désagréable. After my fall from the 16th floor, my bones were lovingly assembled. They were transparent. I was carried into the gorgeous dollhouse and placed on a fainting couch upholstered with brilliant poppies. My ship had come in, so to speak. There were others, lovers, sitting and speaking nearby. Are you the Countess of C? I demanded. She smiled and returned her gaze to the other. Someone brought in a tray of cakes which were distributed to the guests according to a fixed plan. Here, this one's for you. Take it. I looked and saw only a small cat rolling in the snow of the darkened gutter. If this is mine, then I don't want it. Abruptly, the chords of a string quartet finished. I was on a shallow porch. The village movie palaces were letting out. I thought I saw a cousin from years back. Before I could call out, she turned, sallow. I saw that this was not the person. Conversations continued streaming in the erstwhile twilight. I betook myself to the toll booth. The pumpkin yellow sun lit all this up, climbing slowly from ankles to handlebar. He had shaved his head some seven years ago. The lovers were bored then. They no longer meandered by the brookside, telling and retelling ancient secrets as though this time of life were an anomaly, a handicap that had been foreseen. In truth, these labels don't go far. It was I who made a career in singing, but it could just as well have been somewhere else. Indeed, 
The dust was sweeping itself up, making sport of the broom. The solar disk was clogged with the bristles of impending resolution. Which direction did he say to take? I'm confused now a little. It was my understanding we would, in joining hands, be chastised, that the boss man would be sympathetic, the sly apprentice, unresonant as a squatter's treehouse. See, though, it wasn't me that dictated, that dictated the orbits of the plants, the viburnum at the door. And just as I had called you, the image decomposed, restlessness of fish in a deodorant ad. By golly, Uncle Ted will soon be here. Until it happens, you can catch your breath looking about the walls of the familiar nest. But his flight was delayed for five hours. Now someone was interested. The travel mishaps of others are truly absorbing. He read from a large timetable, and the helium balloon rose straight up out of the city, entered the region of others' indifference and their benighted cares. Can't that child be made to stop practicing? In another life, we were in a cottage made of thin boards above a small lake. The embroidered hems of waves annoyed the shoreline. There were no boats, only trees and boathouses. It's good to step off that steel carousel. The woods were made for musicianly echoes, though not all at once. Too many echoes are like no echo, or a single tall one. Please return dishes to main room after using... Try a little subtlety in self-defense. It'll help, you'll find out. The boards of the cottage grew apart and we walked out into the sand under the sea. It was time for the sun to exhort the mute apathy of sitters, hangers-on, ballast of the universal dredging operation. The device was called candy. We had seen it all before but would never let on, not until the postman came right up to the door, born on the noble flood. Racked by jetsam, we cry out for flotsam, anything to stanch the hole in the big ad. We all came to be here quite naturally. You see, we are the lamplighters of our criminal past, trailing red across the sidewalks and divided highways. Yes, she said, you most certainly can come here now and be assured of, st of staying, of starving, forever if we wish though we shall not observe the dark's convolutions much longer, sob. Utterly, you are the under one. We are all neighbors, if you wish, but don't under any circumstances go crawling to the barrel organ for sympathy. You'd only blow a fuse, and where is the force in that? I know your seriousness is long gone, facing pink horizons in other hemispheres. We'd all blow up if it didn't. Meanwhile, it's nice to have a chair, a chair is a good thing to be. We should all know that. The last trail unspools beyond Ohio. I'll read one more, a short prose poem called um, Theme Park Days. Dickhead, they called him, <laughs> for his name was Dong, Tram Van Dong. Carefully, he slid open the small Judas in his chest and withdrew a heart-shaped disc. It appeared to be cut from thicknesses of newspaper crudely stapled together. There was handwriting on one side, spirit writing, he indicated with a motion of his head. 
Yet it all seemed for naught, ancient stock market quotations or chalked messages on hoardings of the last century with plus and minus signs featured prominently. O vos omnes, he breathed, blown together like milkweed on the hither shore of this embattled plain. Will your feet soon mean to you what once they did? I think not. Meanwhile, the tempest brays, favor is curried, the taffetas of autumn slide toward us over the frosted parquet, and this loquat heart is yours for the dividing. Sailboat of the Luxembourg, vibrations of crisp mornings ripple ever closer. The joiner joins, the ostler ostles, the seducer seduces, nor stirs far from his crimson hammock. Delphic squibs caparison the bleak afternoon, and the critics love it, eat it up, can't get enough of it. More pap, more pap. Have a care, though, lest what I tell you here trespass beyond the booth of our conniving. Yet it will spread, as surely as an epidemic becomes the element we have chosen to live in, our old infectious experiment. Given our circumstance and the fact of our public company and recalling the extraordinary persons who have been here in the past, I think specifically of William Sloan Coffin, uh, one would like to uh, ask that all, uh, I'm sure it's not a necessary advice, consider as deeply and specifically as he or she can the propositions of our government, specifically of our president, and consider what war has brought us specifically in the, say, 76 years of my life and that of my dear company. Pictures. This distance between pane of glass, eyesight, the far-waving green edge of trees, sun's reflection, light yellow, and sky there too, light blue. I will sit here till breeze ambient enfolds me and I lift away. I will sit here as sun warms my hands, my body eases and sounds grow soft and intimate in my ears. I will sit here and the back of the house behind me will at last disappear. I will sit here. Harry's gone out for pizza, Mabel's home all alone. Mother just left for Bisa. Give the old man a bone. Remember when Barkus was willing? When onions grew on the lawn? When airplanes cost just a shilling? Where have the good times gone? 
If one looked back, or things to look, in that uselessly opaque direction, little enough's ever there. What is it one stares into, thinks still to recover, as it all fades out? Mind's vagary? I call to you brutally. I remember the day we met. I remember how you sat impatient to get out. Back is no direction. To pass, life is the river we've carried with us. Sun shadows aslant across opening, expansive, various green fields down from door. Here ajar on tower's third floor. Look out on wonder this morning. I never met you afterward, nor seemingly knew you before. Our lives were interfolded, wrapped like a present. The odors, the tastes, the surfaces of our bodies were that map, were the map, the mind a distraction, trying to keep up. I could not compare you to anything. You were not like rhubarb or clean sheets or, dear as it might be, sudden rain in the street. All those years ago on the beach in Dover with that time so ominous and the couple so human, pledging their faith to one another, now again such a time seems here not to fear death or what's been so given to yield one's own despair. Like sitting in back seat, can't see what street we're on or what the one driving sees or where we're going, waiting for what's to happen, can't quite hear the conversation, the big people sitting up front. Death be not proud, days be not done, air be not gone, head be not cowed. Birds be not dead, thoughts be not fled, come back instead, hearts hopeful wedding. Face faint in mirror, why does it stay there? What's become a person who was here? Wet water, warm fire, rough wood, cold stone. Hot coals, shining star, physical hill still my will, mind's ambience alters all. As I rode out one morning, just at break of day, a pain came upon me, unexpectedly. As I thought one day, not to think anymore, I thought again, caught and could not stop. Were I the horse I rode? Were I the bridge I crossed? Were I a tree unable to move? The lake would have no reflections, the sweet, soft air, no sounds. So I hear, I see, tell still the echoing story of all that lives in a forest 
all that surrounds me. Then one last, uh, much shorter. Generous life. Do you remember the way we used to sing in church when we were young? And it was fun to bring your toys with you and play with them while all the others sung. My mind goes on its own particular way and leaves my apparent body on its knees to get up and walk as far as it can, if it still wants to, and as it still proves able. Sit down, says generous life, and stay a while, although it's irony that sets the table and puts the meager food on broken dishes, pours out the rancid wine, and walks away. six sections called October. I'll read the numbers. One. Is it winter again? Is it cold again? Didn't Frank just slip on the ice? Didn't he heal? Weren't the spring seeds planted? Didn't the night end? Didn't the melting ice flood the narrow gutters? Wasn't my body rescued? Wasn't it safe? Didn't the scar form invisible above the injury? Terror and cold, didn't they just end? Wasn't the back garden harrowed and planted? I remember how the earth felt, red and dense. In stiff rows weren't the seeds planted. Didn't vines climb the south wall? I can't hear your voice for the sound, for the wind's cries whistling over the bare ground. I no longer care what sound it makes. When was I silenced? When did it first seem pointless to describe that sound? What it sounds like can't change what it is. Didn't the night end? Wasn't the earth safe when it was planted? Didn't we plant the seeds? Weren't we necessary to the earth? The vines, were they harvested? Two. Summer after summer has ended, bomb after violence. It does me no good to be good to me now. Violence has changed me. Daybreak. The low hills shine, ochre and fire, even the fields shine. I know what I see. Sun that could be the August sun returning, everything that was taken away. You hear this voice? This is my mind's voice. You can't touch my body now. It has changed once. It has hardened. Don't ask it to respond again. A day like a day in summer, exceptionally still. The long shadows of the maples nearly mauve on the gravel paths. 
and in the evening, warmth, night like a night in summer. It does me no good. Violence has changed me. My body has grown cold like the stripped fields. Now there is only my mind, cautious and wary, with the sense it is being tested. Once more, the sun rises as it rose in summer, bounty, bomb after violence, bomb after the leaves have changed, after the fields have been harvested and turned. Tell me, this is the future, I won't believe you. Tell me, I'm living, I won't believe you. Three. Snow had fallen. I remember music from an open window. Come to me, said the world. This is not to say it spoke in exact sentences, but that I perceived beauty in this manner. Sunrise. A film of moisture on each living thing. Pools of cold light formed in the gutters. I stood at the doorway, ridiculous as it now seems. What others found in art, I found in nature. What others found in human love, I found in nature. Very simple. But there was no voice there. Winter was over, and the thawed dirt bits of green were showing. Come to me, said the world. I was standing in my wool coat at a kind of bright portal, I can finally say, long ago. It gives me considerable pleasure. Beauty, the healer, the teacher. Death cannot harm me more then you have harmed me, my beloved life. Four. The light has changed. Middle sea is tuned darker now, and the songs of morning sound over-rehearsed. This is the light of autumn, not the light of spring. The light of autumn, you will not be spared. The songs have changed. The unspeakable has entered them. This is the light of autumn, not the light that says, I am reborn, not the spring dawn. I strained, I suffered, I was delivered. This is the present, an allegory of waste. So much has changed, and still you are fortunate. The ideal burns in you like a fever or not like a fever, like a second heart. The songs have changed, but really they are still quite beautiful. They have been concentrated in a smaller space, the space of the mind. They are dark now with desolation and anguish, and yet the notes recur. They hover oddly in anticipation of silence. The ear gets used to them. The eye gets used to disappearances. 
you will not be spared, nor will what you love be spared. A wind has come and gone, taking apart the mind. It has left in its wake a strange lucidity. How privileged you are to be still passionately clinging to what you love. The forfeit of hope has not destroyed you. Maestoso, doloroso, this is the light of autumn it has turned on us. Surely it is a privilege to approach the end still believing in something. Five. It is true there is not enough beauty in the world. It is also true that I am not competent to restore it. Neither is there candor, and here I may be of some use. I am at work, though I am silent. The bland misery of the world bounds us on either side, an alley lined with trees. We are companions here, not speaking, each with his own thoughts behind the trees, iron gates of the private houses, the shuttered rooms somehow deserted, abandoned, as though it were the artist's duty to create hope. But out of what, what, the word itself false, a device to refute perception. At the intersection, ornamental lights of the season I was young here, riding the subway with my small book as though to defend myself against this same world. You are not alone, the poem said in the dark tunnel. Six. The brightness of the day becomes the brightness of the night. The fire becomes the mirror. My friend, the earth is bitter. I think sunlight has failed her. Bitter or weary, it is hard to say. Between herself and the sun, something has ended. She wants now to be left alone. I think we must give up turning to her for affirmation. Above the fields... Above the roofs of the village houses, the brilliance that made all life possible becomes the cold stars. Lie still and watch. They give nothing, but ask nothing. From within the earth's bitter disgrace, coldness and barrenness, my friend, the moon rises. She is beautiful tonight, but when is she not beautiful?
This first poem has as its epigraph W. H. Auden's overquoted line, Poetry Makes Nothing Happen. Uh, in a sense, this was like being uh, pitched a, uh, a curveball that never broke. You had to hit it. So this poem is called Making Nothing Happen. Uh, <clears throat> there are two words in it that will be unfamiliar to most people, tohu and bohu, which are the words in the Hebrew Bible that are translated without form and void. They mean chaos, and you'll see this is about chaos at the beginning. Making nothing happen. Before there could be nothing, there were two, too many somethings, all abuzz. Tohu scrapping with bohu, pain and desire. Delight and fear, a world of knowings, dim and bright, suspended in a universal blancmange. She could not allow this to go on. She said, let there be night. And there was night, intensest night, within which nothing might be seen emerging from its ruined tomb, making itself a kind of spaceless room setting its engines of denial stirring, and then, quite irreversibly, occurring. Nothing had finally happened. (laughs) In future, then, something would never be the same again. This next poem, the title poem of my forthcoming book, is called Picture Window. I think the term is still used to refer to large plate glass windows, although in my childhood they were a newer invention. Uh, The handsome fellow visiting us in the mountains stood at the picture window, giving on, as I used to say, a view of three bright sister peaks that we call Patty, Peggy, and Polly. (laughs) Seen from behind, he composed one of those images they call, the Germans, Rickfiguren his back backed by the facing prospect facing us while the ever-changing end of the daylight wrought continual wonders on the hills, shedding cloaks of shadow over parts of the valley visible from where he stood, gazing at what I realized as he touched his chin briefly the better to inspect something about it was merely his own image he was admiring. That was all he could see in the window not the world, as it yielded up alms in one of its all-too-infrequent moments of beauty, simple and non-contingent. Too bad that in a glass lightly face-to-mirrored face he could only toy in the worst way with that splendid modern instrument of truth, plate glass, which superimposes mirrored patches of Gaze's face and bits of the space out of which he looks upon all that he might be seeing, something of subject seen as inescapable from all sight of the object of its regard. That we see through ourselves, through our very seeing itself, the better to live with, save in the opacities of talk of them, the indivisibility of our transparency of body and the mind's complicating, fragile reflectiveness. Just to read uh, some, uh, some
some short poems from a sequence of mine called Powers of Thirteen. These are sort of deformed sonnets, 13 lines of 13 syllables. And this is one called uh, Reflections of Desire. It's about, uh, comes from meditating yet again on moon, moonlight on ocean water. Mademoiselle de la Moon gazes at her gleaming in the ever-hungering sea's midnight waves. My queen, Sir Water seems to sing, I am subject to your light. Your will betides well or ill for my very motions. Yet the wailing main need not crave favors. He has made the cold moon up, projected her out of his flashings and phosphorescences onto the fire-bearing night, rolled his wet lamplight into a round mirroring rock. His rough surface shapes up an object to be subject to. There are too many reflections on mirrors by far as it is for me to dwell upon the parable. And for once, the firstness of the sun does not apply. This is a matter only of moon and ocean light. And this one is about riddles. It's called Being Puzzled. Uh, the Gordian Knot was a famous knot that you were supposed to figure out how to untangle. And Alexander the Great, that brutal literalist, simply cut it. <laughs> Unanswered, our riddles remain wise and beautiful in the impossibility of is and is nots ones and many's at once, fluctuating numbers of legs. The Gordian knot was gorgeous if you stopped to look. Solving them shoots down the angels of their oddity, and the prize that thunks down on the hard ground at one's feet might as well have been store-bought. One must always recall the puzzle in the elusive thrumming of its flight, or be left with garbage. Like the punned and anagrammed crossword finally finished on that scrap of magazine. What's it good for now? Eating a ripe peach on? Fold it up into a paper airplane and send it flying out a window of the city, raising questions anew. And finally, this is a sequence of three of these in form known as a corona, where the last line of the first one is the first line of the others. It's uh, called requiescat. Uh, there are a number of uh, cats named in this, and inevitably one cat is mentioned as being still alive, but of course it had died by the time the poem was finished, but I left it that way. Remembering my dear dead black cat sometimes returns others to my sight. Christine, her kittens Chatto and Windus and Fergie, Emmeline and hers, Cross Pumpkin, Bertha of the Placid Gray and Quiet Young Eggplant, Flora, Bert, Nasty Zoltan, Wolfgang and Ludwig's sweet mother Priscilla, out of whom by Wilson they were. Where are the others' cats I knew? Georgia, Maisie, Wow. Of these only noble Rose remains. Where are they now? 
And where are all their days, the yesteryears and images that melt like black snow along a dark, familiar rug? Furred felicities absent them from us in a while. Months ago, I'd promised you something for poor Wolfgang. What can be said of dead cats that is not dead itself? What can be said of dead cats? That is not dead itself which can escape the icy caress of accurate memory. And you might add, make her stuffy, bemused daughters buzz off. Come, help me then with some fancy work. Like all cats I've known, he belonged also to you. A corona for Wolfgang now, all of evergreen intertwined with catnip, which would send him and Ludwig, his poor gray brother who predeceased him by not quite a year, literally up the wall. But you must pluck faded souvenirs like that figuratively out of this wreath, lest it wither now like last summer's news. There can be no catalog of habits or times when, no contrived inventory of storied occasions. No contrived inventory of storied occasions could record the string of being holding them in line the part of whatever room it was that for a time became the place of the cat. Lair, veldt, branch, hearth, or crag. And yet now, even with your forefinger at my lips, I reform unutterable losses, reaffirm what I was making of him alive. Dead now a year, he is in my hands. I feel him draped around my neck, Hear the all but silent fall of paw on midnight floor, drops of some tincture of the absolute. Absence breeds presences in the cells that hollows out in the rock of our days, and I can't wonder how, in shudders of remembering, my dear dead black cat sometimes returns. The last poem, a short one. Called an old-fashioned song. Its epigraph is from the French children's game, which is like our ring around a rosy. They sort of dance around and sing, Nous n'irons plus au bois, les laurées sont coupées. We aren't going to the woods anymore, the laurel trees have all been cut down. No more walks in the wood. The trees have all been cut down. And where once they stood, not even a wagon rut appears along the path, low brushes taking over. No more walks in the wood. This is the aftermath of afternoons in the clover fields, where we once made love, then wandered home together, where the trees arched above, where we made our own weather when branches were the sky. Now they're gone for good and you for ill, and I am only a passerby. We, and the trees, and the way back from the fields of play, lasted as long as we could. No more walks in the wood.
about to read this evening is irrevocably associated in my mind through a tangled chain of circumstances with this university and with one of Yale's most distinguished, most beloved scholars and writers. On a spring day in the late 60s, April 4th, 1968, to be exact, I had come to New Haven for an overnight visit to give a reading of my poems. As usual, whenever the opportunity presented itself, I stayed with my dear friends, Nancy and R.W.B. Lewis, then master of Calhoun College. That afternoon, in their guest bedroom, I tried desperately, but in vain, to finish the poem I had been struggling with for weeks, a poem that seemed to want to convey the obscure legend of my youth. In the living room before dinner, while we were having drinks, Dick turned on the TV to catch the news. What we then witnessed on the screen in a state of shock was the assassination of Martin Luther King, who only a few weeks before had been telling me about the problems of the civil rights campaign and its need for advocates among the poets. The news was more than I could bear. I sought the privacy of my room and in a few minutes hastily scribbled the final nine lines of my poem beginning in a murderous time. That night, I read the testing tree in public for the first time. As I dedicate this night's reading of the testing tree to the memory of Dick Lewis, I am moved to recall how often he said to me, Stanley, we have been through the wars. As for me, I know that the wars never stop. The Testing Tree. This is a poem in four parts. 
on my way home from school up tribal Providence Hill past the academy ballpark where I could never hope to play I scuffed in the drainage ditch among the sodden seas of leaves hunting for perfect stones rolled out of glacial time into my pitcher's hand then sprinted lickety-split on my magic heads from a crouching start, scarcely touching the ground with my flying skin as I poured it on for the prize of the mastery over that stretch of road, with no one nowhere to deny when I flung myself down that on the given course, I was the world's fastest human. Two. Around the bend that tried to loop me home, dawdling came natural across a nettle field riddled with rabbit life where the bees sank sugar wells in the trunks of the maples and a stringy old lilac more than two stories tall blazing with mildew remembered a door in the long teeth of the woods. All of it happened slow brushing the stick seed off, wading through jewel weeds strangled by angel's hair, spotting the print of the deer and the red fox's scats. Once I owned the key to an umbrageous trail thickened with mosses where flickering presences gave me right of passage as I followed in the steps of straight-backed massasoit, soundlessly, heel and toe, practicing my Indian walk. Three. Past the abandoned quarry, where the pale sun bobbed in the sump of the granite, past Copperhead Ledge, where the ferns gave foothold, I walked deliberate onto the clearing, with the stones in my pocket changing to oracles, and my coiled ear turned to the slightest leaf stir. I had kept my appointment. There I stood in the shadow at 50 measured paces of the inexhaustible oak, tyrant and target, Jehovah of acorns, watchtower of the thunders that locked King Philip's war 
in its annulated core under the cut of my name. Father, wherever you are, I have only three throws. Bless my good right arm in the haze of afternoon while the air flowed saffron. I played my game for keeps, for love, for poetry, and for eternal life after the trials of summer. For in the recurring dream, my mother stands in her bridal gown under the burning lilac with Bernard Shaw and Bertie Russell kissing her hands. The house behind her is in ruins. She is wearing an owl's face and makes barking noises. Her minatory finger points I pass through the cardboard doorway askew in the field and peer down a well where an albino walrus huffs. He has the gentlest eyes. If the dirt keeps sifting in, staining the water yellow, why should I be blamed? Never try to explain. That single model A sputtering up the grade unfurled a highway behind where the tanks maneuver revolving their turrets. In a murderous time, the heart breaks and breaks and lives by breaking. It is necessary to go through dark and deeper dark and not to turn. I am looking for the trail. Where is my testing tree? Give me back my stones. second person. And the first one is called Vixen. Comet of stillness, princess of what is over, high note held without trembling, without voice, without sound, aura of complete darkness, keeper of the kept secrets, of the destroyed stories, the escaped dreams, the sentences never caught in words, warden of where the river went,
touch of its surface, sibyl of the extinguished, window onto the hidden place and the other time. At the foot of the wall by the road, patient without waiting in the full moonlight of autumn, at the hour when I was born, you no longer go out like a flame at the sight of me. You are still warmer than the moonlight gleaming on you. Even now you are unharmed, even now perfect, as you have always been. Now when your light paws are running on the breathless night, on the bridge with one end, I remember you. When I have heard you, the soles of my feet have made answer. When I have seen you, I have waked and slipped from the calendars, from the creeds of difference and the contradictions that were my life, and all the crumbling fabrications as long as it lasted, until something that we were had ended. When you are no longer anything, let me catch sight of you again going over the wall. And before the garden is extinct and the woods are figures guttering on a screen, let my words find their own places in the silence after the animals. To my teeth. So the companions of Ulysses, those that were still with him after the night in the horse, the sea lanes, the other islands, the friends lost one by one in pain, and the coming home one bare day to a later age that was their own, but with their scars now upon them, and now darkened and worn, and some broken beyond recognition, and still missing the ones taken away from beside them who had grown up with them and served long without question, wanting nothing else, sat around in the old places across from the hollows, reminding themselves that they were the lucky ones, <laughs> together where they belonged. But would he stay there? poem that I want to read because it was finished on September the 10th last year. To the light of September. When you are already here, you appear to be only a name that tells of you whether you are present or not. And for now it seems as though you are still summer. Still the high, familiar, endless summer, yet with a glint of bronze in the chill mornings and the late yellow petals of the mullen fluttering on the stalks that lean over their broken shadows across the cracked ground. But they all know that you have come. The seed heads of the sage, the whispering birds with nowhere to hide you, to keep you for later. You who fly with them, you who are neither before nor after, you who arrive with blue plums, 
that have fallen through the night, perfect in the dew. the consolations of philosophy. Thank you, but not just at the moment. <laughs> I know you will say I have said that before. I know you have been there all along somewhere in another time zone. I studied once those beautiful instructions when I was young and far from here. They seemed distant then. They seem distant now from everything I remember. I hope they stayed with you when the news started to tighten and you could say no more. And after wisdom and the days in iron, the eyes started from your head. I know the words must have been set down partly for yourself, unjustly condemned after a good life. I know the design of the world is beyond our comprehension. Thank you. But grief is selfish and in the present. When the stars do not seem to move, I was not listening. I know it is not sensible to expect fortune to grant her gifts forever. I know. To absence, raw shore of paradise, which the long waves reach just as they fail one after the other, bare strand beyond which at times I believe I see is in the glass darkly what I know here and now cannot be, a face I can never touch, a gaze that cannot stay, which I catch sight of, still turned upon me, following me from under the sky of your groundless country that has no syllable of its own. What good to you are the treasures beyond words or number that you seize forever, unmapped imperium, with only here, when only here in the present, which has, which has lost them, only now, in the moment you have not yet taken, does anyone know them or how rare they are? There were a number of poems that were written <clears throat> about this time last year. I want to read two of them. One of them was, I didn't know where on earth it came from, and uh, it was a totally nutty one, to dressed as Bigniff Herbert's bicycle. And Bigniff Herbert was, a, uh, as you all know, a very great Polish poet, whom I loved as a man and as a poet. He certainly never had a bicycle. I thought he was on a bicycle. And I woke up one morning having to write this poem to Bigniff Herbert's bicycle. And I should say that this was written about a week after September the 11th. I mean, so it was, seemed to seem to me you didn't, you didn't stop to understand why any of these things might be so. Since he never really possessed you, however he may have longed to in secret, 
so that in dreams he knew each surface and detail of you, gleam of spokes and chrome, smells of grease and rubber, the chains, black knuckles. Day by day you remained out of sight so that he never had to lock you up or hide you because nobody could see you. And though he never, in fact, learned how to ride you, keeping his round, toppling weight upright on the two small toes of water slipping out from under, once he was well away, hands on the grips, feet off the ground, you could take him anywhere. At last, like the rain, through the rain, invisible as you were. Two more poems, one to ashes. All the green trees bring their rings to you, the widening circles of their years to you late and soon, casting down their crowns into you at once they are gone, not to appear as themselves again, O season of your own from whom now even the fire has moved on out of the green voices and the days of summer, out of the spoken names and the words between them, the mingled nights, the hands, the hope, the faces, those circling ages dancing in flames as we see now, afterward, here before you. O oh, you with no beginning that we can conceive of, no end that we can foresee, you of whom once we were made before we knew ourselves in this season of our own. And finally, a poem called to the words. When it happens, you are not there. Oh, you beyond numbers, beyond recollection, passed on from breath to breath, given again from day to day, from age to age, charged with knowledge, knowing nothing. Indifferent elders, indispensable and sleepless, keepers of our names before ever we came to be called by them, you that were formed to begin with, you that were cried out, you that were spoken to begin with, to say what could not be said, ancient, precious, and helpless ones, say it. Santa Clarita Valley is the first little watershed north of the Los Angeles River along uh, the I-5 going north out of Los Angeles. This little poem, these are all going to be really little poems, in the Santa Clarita Valley is a poem for nature writers to take uh, a solace from after nature is gone. 
like skinny wild wheat flowers poking up, a hexagonal Denny's sign, starry Carl's, loopy McDonald's, eight-petaled yellow shell, blue and white mobile with a big red O, growing in the asphalt riparian zone by the soft roar of the flow of Interstate 5. <laughs> Coffee, market, blossoms. My Japanese mother-in-law, born in America, tough with brokers, a smart trader, grew up working barefoot in the Delta on the farm. Doesn't like Japan. Sits in the early morning by the window, coffee in hand, gazing at cherry blossoms, needing no poem. Yet older matters. There's a lot of meteoric rock uh, scattered out on the ice fields of Antarctica, which is very useful because they can't have come from anywhere else. A rain of black rocks out of space onto deep blue ice in Antarctica, 9,000 feet high, scattered for miles, crunched inside yet older matter from times before our very sun. From a conversation with the geologist Eldridge Morris. Flowers in space. I thought forest fires burning to the north. Yellow Nomex jacket thrown in the cab, hard hat, boots. I gunned the truck up the dirt road, scrambling, and came out on a flat stretch with a view. Shimmering blue-green streamers and a red glow all down the sky. Stop. Storms on the sun. Solar winds going by. That was April of uh, 2001. Big red north sky. Most amazing northern lights that ever came down to the uh, California latitudes. A dent in a bucket. Hammering a dent out of a bucket, a woodpecker answers from the woods. She knew all about art. She was fragrant, soft. I rode to her fine stone apartment, hid the bike in the hedge. We met at an opening. Her lover was brilliant and rich. First we would talk, then drift into long, gentle love. We always made love in the dark, 30 years older than me. Loads on the road. Stews, stubby, heavy, tough, old, yellow dump truck, parked by his place, for sale, 
He's fine, but times and people change. Those loads of river run and crushed blue mine rock in our road bed, Stu and me, standing, talking, engine idling. Those days gone now, days to come. Here's a, 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 I'm going to read a few selections from a series of very brief poems I wrote uh, in July of 2001, reflecting on uh, 25 years of visiting a certain alpine area in the Sierra, back of my house, a Five Lakes Basin and Sand Ridge, late July. Rocky bed below a tilted erratic, chilly, restless night. Ants in my hair. Nap on a granite slab. Half in shade. You can never hear enough sound of wind in the pines. Catching grasshoppers to fish with. Attaching them live to the hook. I get used to it. Steve Sandfield, needling Allen Ginsberg by the campfire. How come they all love you? <laughs> Starting a glissade down a steep snowfield, they say, Gary, don't. But I know my ice axe. A gift of rattlesnake meat, packed in, cooked on smoky coals. How did it taste? <laughs> Things spread out, rolling and unrolling, packing and unpacking this painful, impermanent world. Coming back down the trail from Glacier Lake, KJ lifts her t-shirt. Look, I'm getting boobs. <laughs> Two tiny points, age This would be more in the order of a high boon uh, of a prose and poetry combination. One, March 2001. The Chinese Buddhist pilgrim Xuanzang described the gleaming painted giant stone Buddhas standing in their cave niches along the Bamiyan Valley as he passed through there on foot on his way to India in the 7th century AD. Last week, they were blown up by the Taliban. Not just by the Taliban, but by woman and nature denying authoritarian worldviews that go back much farther than Islam. Dennis Dutton sent this poem around 
Not even under mortar fire do they flinch. The Buddhas of Bamiyan take refuge in the dust. May we keep our minds clear and calm in the present moment and honor the dust. 2. April 2001 From a man who writes about Buddhism. Dear Gary, Well, yes, but the manifest dharma is intra-samsaric and it too will decay. Roger. I said, Ah, yes, Roger, impermanence. But this is never a reason to let compassion and focus slide or to pass off the sufferings of others because they are merely impermanent beings. The haiku goes, Issa, this dewdrop world is but a dewdrop world, and yet that and yet is our perennial practice and maybe the root of the Dharma. Three, a person who should know better wrote, many credulous and sentimental Westerners, I suspect, were upset by the destruction of the Afghan Buddha figures because they believe that so-called Eastern religion is more tender-hearted and less dogmatic. So, is nothing sacred? Only respect for human life and culture, which requires no divine sanction and no priesthood to inculcate it. The foolish veneration of holy places and holy texts remains a principal obstacle to that simple realization. That was Christopher Hitchens, who writes for the nation, among other things. I wrote him back. <laughs> this is another case of blame the victim. Buddhism is not on trial here. The Bamiyan statues are part of human life and culture. They are works of art being destroyed by idolaters of the text. Is there anything credulous in respecting the art and religious culture of the past? Counting on the tender-heartedness of most Buddhists, you can feel safe in trashing the Bamiyan figures as though the Taliban wasn't doing a good enough job. I doubt you would have the nerve to call for launching a little miss missile at the Kaaba. There are people who would put a hit on you, and you know it. 4. September 2001. The men and women who died at the World Trade Center, together with the Buddhas of Mamiyan, take refuge in the dust. And I'm going to finish with this little poem for Philip Whelan. Uh, a wonderful, uh, a, re a remarkable West Coast poet and a Zen priest in his later years who died on the 26th of June this year. And this poem is also for 33 trees that departed our forest about the same date for a mill. Load of logs on, chains cinched down and double-checked, the truck heads slowly up the hill. I bow, namaste, and farewell. These ponderosa pine, whose air and rain and sun we shared for 30 years. Struck by beetles, needles turning rusty brown. 
and moving on. Decking, shelving, siding, stringers, studs, and joists. I will think of you, pines from this mountain, as you shelter people in the valley years to come. to the wind is feeling the ungraspable somewhere close by. Trees can sway or be still. Day or night can be what they wish. What we desire more than a season or weather is the comfort of being strangers, at least to ourselves. This is the crux of the matter which is why even now we seem to be waiting for something whose appearance would be its vanishing. The sound, say, of a few leaves falling, or just one leaf, or less. There is no end to what we can learn. The book out there tells us as much, and was never written with us in mind. I am not thinking of death, but death is thinking of me. He leans back in his chair, rubs his hands, strokes his beard, and says, I'm thinking of Strand. (laughs) I'm thinking that one of these days I'll be out back swinging my scythe, or holding my hourglass up to the moon, and Strand will appear in a jacket and tie. And together under the boulevard's leafless trees, we'll stroll into the city of souls. And when we get to the great piazza, with its marble mansions, the crowd that had been waiting there will welcome us with delirious cries and their tears turned hard and cold as glass from having been held back so long will fall and clatter on the stones below. Oh, let it be soon. Let it be soon. (laughs) The idea. For us, too, there was a wish to possess something beyond the world we knew, beyond ourselves, beyond our power to imagine, something nevertheless in which we might see ourselves. And this desire came always in passing, in waning light, and in such cold that ice on the valley's lakes cracked 
and rolled, and blowing snow covered what earth we saw, and scenes from the past when they surfaced again looked not as they had, but ghostly and white among false curves and hidden erasures. And never once did we feel we were close until the night wind said, why do this, especially now? Go back to the place you belong. And there appeared with its windows glowing, small in the distance, in the frozen reaches, a cabin. And we stood before it, amazed at its being there, and would have gone forward and opened the door and stepped into the glow and warmed ourselves there, but that it was ours by not being ours and should remain empty. That was the idea. Our masterpiece is the private life. Is there something down by the water keeping itself from us? Some shy event? Some secret of the light that falls upon the deep? Some source of sorrow that does not wish to be discovered yet? Why should we care? Doesn't desire cast its rainbows over the course porcelain of the world's skin and with its measures fill the air? Why look for more? And now, while the advocates of awfulness and sorrow push their dripping barge up and down the beach, let's eat our brill and sip this beautiful white bone. True, the light is artificial, and we are not well-dressed. So what? We like it here. We like the bullocks in the field next door. We like the sound of wind passing over grass. The way you speak in that low voice, our late night disclosures. Why live for anything else? Our masterpiece is the private life. Standing on the quay between the roving swan and the star immaculate, breathing the night air as the moment of pleasure taken, in pleasure vanishing seems to grow, its self-soiling beauty, which can only be what it was, sustaining itself a little longer in its going. I think of our own smooth passage through the graded partitions, the crises that bleed into the ordinary, leaving us a little more tired each time, a little more distant from the experiences which in the old days held us captive for hours. The drive along the winding road back to the house, the sea pounding against the cliffs, the glass of whiskey on the table, the open book, the questions, all the day's rewards waiting at the doors of sleep. But it was. This is a poem in two parts. One. It was impossible to imagine, impossible not to imagine, the blueness of it, the shadow it cast, falling downward, filling the dark with the chill of itself, the cold of it falling out of itself, out of whatever idea of itself it described as it fell, a something, 
a smallness, a dot, a speck, a speck within a speck, an endless depth of smallness, a song, but less than a song, something drowning into itself, something going, a flood of sound, but less than a sound, the last of it, the blank of it, the tender small blank of it filling its echo and falling and rising unnoticed and falling again and always thus and always because and only because once having been it was two it was the beginning of a chair it was the gray couch it was the walls the garden the gravel road it was the way the ruined moonlight fell across her hair it was that and it was more. It was the wind that tore the trees. It was the fuss and clutter of clouds, the shore littered with stars. It was the hour which seemed to say that if you knew what time it really was, you would not ask for anything again. It was that. It was certainly that. It was also what never happened a moment so full that when it went as it had to, no grief was large enough to contain it. It was the room that appeared unchanged after so many years. It was that. It was the hat she'd forgotten to take, the pen she left on the table. It was the sun on my hand. It was the sun's heat. It was the way I sat, the way I waited for hours, for days, it was that, just that. And one last poem, appropriately called The End. In case you thought 2002 was the end. Not everyone knows what he shall sing at the end, watching the pier as the ship sails away or what it will seem like when he's held by the sea's roar, motionless, there at the end, or what he shall hope for once it is clear that he'll never go back. When the time has passed to prune the rose or caress the cat, when the sunset torching the lawn and the full moon icing it down no longer appear, not everyone knows what he'll discover Instead, when the weight of the past leans against nothing and the sky is no more than remembered light and the stories of Cirrus and Cumulus come to a close and all the birds are suspended in flight, not everyone knows what is waiting for him or what he shall sing when the ship he is on slips into darkness there at the end. title poem from my book Mayflies. 
In somber forest, when the sun was low, I saw from unseen pools a mist of flies in their quadrillions rise and animate a ragged patch of glow with sudden glittering. As when a crowd of stars appear through a brief gap in black and driven cloud, one arc of their great round dance showing clear. It was no muddled swarm I witnessed, for in Entrechat, each fluttering insect there rose two steep yards in air, then slowly floated down to climb once more, so that they all composed a manifold and figured scene, and seemed the weavers of some cloth of gold, or the fine pistons of some bright machine. Watching those lifelong dancers of a day as night closed in, I felt myself alone in a life too much my own, more mortal in my separateness than they, unless I thought I had been called to be not fly or star, but one whose task is joyfully to see how fair the fiats of the caller are. Here's a poem that hasn't been in a book. Um, I found myself wondering a while ago, wondering once again why it is that um, when we hear of some fugitive, someone trying to get away, we almost always hope that he will get away, that he will escape. And that's what this poem, Man Running, is about. Whatever he has done against our law and peace of mind, our mind's eye looks with pity of a kind at the scared, stumbling fellow on the run who hears a siren scream as through the thickets we conceive he plows with fending arms and to deceive the snuffling dogs now flounders up a stream until he doubles back, climbing at length a rocky rise to where he crumbles and exhausted lies in the scorched brush beside a railroad track. If then he hops, hops a freight and clatteringly rides as far as the next county in a cattle car, we feel our sense of him disintegrate in rumors, warnings, claims that here or there he has appeared, tall, short, fierce, furtive, with or without a beard, still in fidelity to childhood games and outlaws of romance, we darkly cheer him. Whether or not he robbed that store or bank or fired that shot and wish him guiltily a sporting chance. Ditching the stolen truck, he disappears into a vast, deep-wooded wilderness and is at last beyond the reach of law and out of luck, and we are one with him, sharing with him that eldest dread which, when it gathers in a sleeping head, is a place mottled, ominous, and dim, 
remembered from the day when we descended from the trees into the shadow of our enemies, not lords of nature yet, but naked prey. I had a curious letter from uh, Miami when that came out in the, in the uh, New Yorker. Someone saying, I liked your poem about Osama bin Laden. <laughs> I said we almost want want everyone to get away. As as our 50-something anniversary approached, I I wrote this poem for my wife. It's a poem about uh, lovers who part and lovers who do not part, did not part. Uh, And I hope it shows some sympathy to lovers of all kinds and fortunes. For C. After the clash of elevator gates and the long sinking, she emerges where a slight thing in the morning's cross-town glare. She looks up toward the window where he waits. Then, in a fleeting taxi, joins the rest of the huge traffic bound forever west. On such grand scale do lovers say goodbye. Even this other pair whose high romance had only the duration of a dance and who now taking leave with stricken eye see each in each a whole new life foregone. For them, above the darkling clubhouse lawn, bright Perseids flash and crumble. While for these who part now on the dock, weighed down by grief and baggage, yet with something like relief, it takes 3,000 miles of knitting seas to cancel out their crossing and unmake the amorous rough and tumble of their wake. We are denied, my love, their fine tristesse and bittersweet regrets and cannot share the frequent vistas of their large despair, where love and all are swept to nothingness. Still, there's a certain scope in that long love which constant spirits are the keepers of, and which, though taken to be tame and staid, is a wild sostenuto of the heart, a passion joined to courtesy and art, which has the quality of something made, like a good fiddle, like the rose's scent, like a rose window or the firmament. As I sometimes confess, I've always wanted to end a poem with the word firmament. (laughs) And... To finish with, here's a, here's a three-part poem of remembering called This Pleasing Anxious Being. It takes its title from Thomas Gray's uh, Elegy in a Country Churchyard. I should tell you, uh, before I get to part two, that the name of the angel of death is Azrael. 
This Pleasing Anxious Being, Part 1. In no time you are back where safety was, spying upon the lambent table where good family faces drink the candlelight as in a manger seen by de la Tour. Father has finished carving at the sideboard and mother's hand has touched a little bell so that beside her chair Roberta looms with serving bowls of yams and succotash. When will they speak or stir? They wait for you to recollect that while it lived, the past was a rushed present, fretful and unsure. The muffled clash of silverware begins with ghosts of gesture, with a laugh retrieved and the warm, edgy voices you would hear. Rest for a moment in that resonance. But see your small feet kicking under the table, fiercely impatient to be off and play. Part two. The shadow of whoever took the picture reaches like Azrael's across the sand toward grown-ups blithe in black and white and camped where surf behind them floods a rocky cove. They turn with wincing smiles, shielding their eyes against the sunlight and the future's glare, which notes their bathing caps, their quaint mayos, the wicker picnic hamper then in style, and will convict them of mortality. Two boys, however, do not plead with time, distracted as they are by what? Perhaps a whacking flash of gull wings overhead. While off to one side, with his back to us, a painter perched before his easel, seeing the marbled surges come to various ruin, seeks out of all those waves to build a wave that shall in blue summation break forever. Part three. Wild, lashing snow, which thumps against the windshield like earth tossed down upon a coffin lid, half clogs the wipers, and our Buick yaws on the black roads of 1928. Father is driving. Mother, leaning out, tracks with her flashlight beam the pavement's edge. And we must weather hours more of storm to be in Baltimore for Christmas time. Of the two children in the back seat, safe beneath a lap robe, soothed by jingling chains, and by their parents' pluck and gaiety, one is asleep. The other's half-closed eyes make out at times the dark hood of the car plowing the eddied flakes and might foresee the steady chugging of a landing craft through morning mist to the bombarded shore or a deft prow that dances through the rocks in the white water of the Allagash or, in good time, the bedstead at whose foot the world will swim and flicker and be gone.
This reading was made possible by the Beinecke Rare Book and Manuscript Library and the Whitney Humanities Center and took place at the historic Center Church on the Green in New Haven, Connecticut on September 20, 2002.